Father and our God, we thank you for your redeeming grace that sets us free from the bondage of sin and its penalty and gives us freedom to walk in obedience to you. Lord, this is surely of your mercy and grace. It's nothing that we deserve. Instead, we deserve your righteous judgment. But we are so thankful, Lord, that out of love and grace, you sent your son to be our savior. And in him we live. In him we are filled with joy. And when we walk with him, there is the confidence that the shepherd guides and protects and feeds until we reach our heavenly home. Fill us this day with your joy and your truth as we open your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Words from last time, Romans chapter 1. As they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and they even invent ways, new ways, of doing evil. They disobey their parents, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Christopher Ashe imagines someone reading that section of scripture and then writing a letter to Paul. Dear Paul, I've just read the second half of Romans chapter one and let me just say, way to stick it to him. I congratulate you on your vigorous, penetrating expose of evil, the evil that is so prevalent in our world. I agree with you. It is disgusting when people not only behave badly, but brazenly approve of bad behavior everywhere. It did be good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice these terrible things you mentioned. On the contrary, I recognize them for the repulsive evils that they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I can't wait, wait to read chapter two. Yours sincerely, <clears throat> and you and I should put our name right there. You see, chapter two begins with a, a moralist, someone who is self-righteous and quick to condemn others. And they must be filled with delight as they've read chapter one. I can remember one time preaching on Romans chapter one and someone came up and 
basically said to me the very things that were in that facetious letter. But do we not see the wickedness around us and condemn it while at the same time overlooking the wickedness within us? Oh, you don't do that. Maybe it's just me. But apparently, with some people in Paul's day, and that's why he starts out in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now, in the context of Paul's letter, we need to remember that he started out explaining, to the gospel, explaining the gospel to us in the first few verses, and then talking about how eager he was to preach it in Rome, this gospel of God's righteousness that is given to all who believe. It's received by faith. The righteous are righteous by faith in Almighty God. But then he was quick to show the wickedness so prevalent in the Gentile world. And that goes from chapter 1, verse 18, down through the section of Scripture we just read. But when he gets into chapter 2, he's going to be dealing more with the Jewish religionists, much like a lot of nominal Christians in our own day. He's going to deal with their situation and show that they are under sin and under God's judgment. And when he gets to chapter 3, all the way through verse 20, he's going to talk about the whole world. Before he comes back to the righteousness of God in chapter 3 and verse 21. You see, before you understand the good news and appreciate it, you have to feel the weight of the bad news that talks about our own sin and God's holy judgment. And so that's what we have here. Paul is actually using a literary technique called a diatribe where he engages with an imaginary heckler and they debate with one another. He's talking about someone who is quite complacent and content with their own morality, but very upset about the sin and wickedness of others. Quick to condemn is what we see in most of man's judgment, including our own. Quick to say, God, I thank you, I'm not like them. <laughs> Remember the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee? Came to the temple to pray, so did a tax collector. The tax collector said, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee said, boy, I'm so glad I'm not like him. And there's a little bit of Pharisee, or maybe a lot of bit of Pharisee, in every one of us. We think we're morally sufficient at times and quick to point out how wrong others are. We're much like James and John, who were called the sons of thunder. What does that mean? Well, when they ran into people who weren't on their side, who were showing signs of rebellion and wickedness, they wanted to call fire down from heaven. And thus got the nickname, Sons of Thunder. I think we probably have too much thunder in our congregations aimed at others. 
religious people zealous to disapprove of others more wicked than them. It was Luther who said, self-righteousness always looks for the good in themselves and the wickedness around them. Because as you push others down, you conversely elevate yourself up and you begin to feel really good. But all of this judgment is flawed by hypocrisy. For whatever you condemn others for, judge others for, and by the way, pass judgment in verse one means to actually condemn. Whatever you judge others for, you do the same thing, or at least the same kind of thing. And because of that, we show ourselves to be hypocrites. You know, when you see an evil in someone else, or maybe you think you see, or maybe you say something like, I know the marks of arrogance. It's all over you. I see it in your eyes. I see it in your walk. I see it in your countenance. Whenever we say something like that, it's often because we are very skilled and educated in arrogance ourselves. That's why I see the signs in you. Not that I point it out in me, mind you. I'm just very familiar with it. I can see it in you because I know it in me. You can't con a con artist. And so here is the religious person, very upset with everyone else and judging. Usually our judgment, always our judgment is insufficient. We don't know the truth. That's why we're told wait until the day of judgment when God who knows everything, will bring about just judgment. But often our judgment is filled with envy and malice and bias. And it always comes out wrong. Someone said when you point a finger at someone else, you are pointing three fingers back at yourself. And in the spiritual realm, that's true. And we get caught up in our own condemnation. Who will forget that moment during David's reign after he had committed a horrible sin with Bathsheba? Tried to cover it up by killing her husband who wouldn't be with his wife so that maybe everyone would think the baby Bathsheba was going to have was her husband's, Uriah, not David's. But Uriah wouldn't do that, and so David had him killed in battle and quickly married Bathsheba. So the thought would be that maybe in the time frame of a human birth, people would think indeed this was David's baby. And now Bathsheba about ready to deliver. And David lying for almost a whole year. Living in misery, he says, if you read Psalm 32 and 51. And then the prophet Nathan came in one day, as he often did, and gave David insight into the scriptures. And one day the prophet Nathan said, let me tell you a story. It's the story about a man who had many sheep and another man who had only one. The man with many sheep had a visitor coming in, but he didn't want to take any from his flock. He went to the man who had only one sheep and took that sheep to make a meal. And as Nathan began to talk about the situation, apparently David thought it was real and actually happening. 
And David almost bolted up from his, his royal throne and said, that man must die. I condemn him for what he's done. How wicked could he be? And what did Nathan say? You're the man. I'm talking about you. And David was crushed as the weight of his sin came down. How we build ourselves walls of hypocrisy so we cannot see our own sin. But Jesus is good at bursting the balloons of our self-righteousness. Matthew 7, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And did you notice at the very beginning of verse 1, there is no excuse for condemning others. Man's judgment is quick to condemn, flawed by hypocrisy, and results in self-condemnation. That's what Paul tells us. But then he spends some time dealing with God's judgment, actually all the way down through verse 16. He tells us how God judges the situation. And you'll notice in verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, probably referring to the uh, wicked deeds of the end of chapter 1 and the hypocrisy of verse 1, chapter 2. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, the opposite of man's judgment. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? And the answer would be, at least from many of the moralistic Jews of that day, why, yes, we will. Because we're a special people. We are the people of God. He loves us alone among all the nations. He will judge the Jews by one standard and the nations by another. And the Jews will be judged as a nation and not as individuals. We will be saved by the covenant. Sacramentalism. We're connected to God by a promise. We're special in his eyes. We've got a get out of jail free card. God's judgment will never touch us. After all, we're Abraham's children, John chapter 8. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Therefore, this judgment stuff is really not for us. I want you to know that that often is the attitude of a nominal Christian who has enough Christian connection to ease a guilty conscience and usher him into false assurance. Enough religious connection to ease a guilty conscience. Now you need to understand that it's not right to approve of wickedness. And here it seems that the person who disapproves of it is hypocritical, so it's almost like a nightmare. There's no excuse in verse 1, and there's no escape in verse 2. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? 
there's only one place of safety, and that is in the righteousness of God. You cannot claim your own, and you cannot condemn others because you are not God. Hebrews chapter two says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So God's judgment is based on truth. The hypocrite's hope is that somehow God won't judge, or if he does judge, it won't be based on truth. The reality is God's judgment is based on truth. But look at verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended you intended to lead you to repentance. So the wrath of God revealed in chapter one is almost slowly being revealed in the cause and consequence of men's evil activities. Now there's coming a day of judgment, which we'll see in the very next verse, mentioned again in verse 16. But God often holds back his judgment. And the response of this moral person is, God's silence must be his favor. Silence is consent. Why? I've been sitting for a while and God's never said anything. I take that to mean he and I are good. But it's quite the contrary. God's silence is designed to lead you to repentance. It's not that you need no repentance. It's just his mercy. Matthew Henry once said, there is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. Every sin takes advantage of the mercy that we have gotten so often, so abundantly. In fact, God's goodness is so consistent to us, we take it for granted And instead of starting out every day asking for his grace and his mercy, we just expect it to be there like the sun rising. It's always there. God's always good. Did you notice in this verse it talks about the riches of his kindness and forbearance? Forbearance is putting up with something that is irritating or wrong. Long-suffering is the attitude you need to put up with something that is irritating or wrong. Long-suffering has the power to avenge, but doesn't use it. It's interesting. Way back in the Old Testament, Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, People's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. This is no political statement when I say if we take away civil authority that punishes wicked behavior, wrong behavior, if we take away that authority, it will only embolden those who sin. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, People's hearts are filled, become bold with all kinds of schemes to do wrong. 
People will say the God who lives in this age, some people will say is not a good God. He's either not good or he's not powerful. If he has the power to change things but doesn't, he must not be good. And if he is good but doesn't change things, then he must not have the power. He's either without mercy or he's without mightiness. But you know, we view life through the wrong lens. We should view it through this lens. Genesis chapter two and verse 17. But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Which is ironic because once they ate of it, they didn't die. Or did they? They did not immediately fall to the ground. But physically, the seeds of death now were inserted into the human race. But they did die immediately, spiritually, when God walked away. And it's the same thing today. View life from that perspective. Because of our sin, we deal with its consequences. But God is good by holding back his judgment, and giving us space to repent. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack, tardy, concerning his promise, as some people count tardiness, slackness. But he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the context of God not coming back and judging the world is this verse that describes, like Romans chapter 2, the kindness of God and the patience of God and the long-suffering to God are to you a mercy so that you and I might repent. It's not his approval. It's his goodness. But verse 2 says, or excuse me, verse 5 of chapter 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself against the day of wrath. Did you see that in verse 5? A day of wrath is coming. The day. God's wrath is being revealed. Chapter 1, God's wrath will be revealed. Chapter 1, it's being revealed through the consequences of men's disobedience. In chapter 2, it's being stored up for the day. Stored up. By the way, that word is used to store up something precious. But here, it's used to store up something precious. Horrendous. Like the floodwaters building up behind an earthen dam that one day in its weakness will break and all the residents below will lose their lives unless they escape. So the wrath of God is building up. It's not that he is forgotten. It's that he is merciful. I think of a of a landlord who's kind to a tenant, and the tenant is truly having a rough time, maybe with poor health. Um, They can't get the rent paid on time, so this landlord gives them extra time, even beyond the law. 
and does what he can, she can to help the tenant to somehow make things right. Our merciful God, who is indeed the landlord of planet Earth, is giving us time to catch up. The fact of the matter is we can't catch up in our own strength. And so a day will come that will be cataclysmic, beyond comprehension. The prophets speak about it in the Old Testament. The book of the Revelation describes it in the New Testament. The day is coming. But here's something that maybe is the most challenging thing in this chapter. God's judgment is based on truth. It's delayed by his kindness. But it also examines our deeds. That is, the deeds and behavior of human beings will be the evidence that God sifts through in announcing publicly his decision of judgment. Look at verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now that's a quotation from either Psalm 62 or the book of Proverbs chapter 24, almost word for word. God will reward, repay each person for what they have done. But when you think about it in verse 6, that sounds an awful like, like, uh, like God is saying you can earn your salvation by your good works. But that's not the truth of it. The truth of it is that our works prove where our heart lies. You shall know them by their fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. Now, I want to read just the verse 6 through 10 and then come back and explain it because it sounds like it could be rather confusing to us. So, verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. To those same people, verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. I think... John Stott has done a great service in putting this together in almost a, a, a graph form, at least in an outline form where we can get a handle on it. So let's use that and look, first of all, at those who do good, everyone who does good. That phrase is taken in verse 10, and the little numbers, if you can see them, are referring to the verses. So everyone who does good. So the question is, or the way to analyze this, so the rest is, verse 7 through 10 is an explanation of verse 6. What are they doing? They are persistent in doing good. It's important for us to see that word persistent. What are they seeking? Glory, honor, and immortality. Glory is the manifestation of God. 
honor is his character and he is uh, the eternal God who gives eternal life. And how will these people end? They will receive life, verse 7, and glory and honor, the very things they were seeking in verse 7, as well as the wonderful peace and shalom of wholeness and wellness. Everyone who does what is good. Now in verse 9, you have everyone who does evil. What do they do? They reject the truth, verse 8. What do they seek? They seek self and follow wickedness or evil, verse 8. And how will they end, verse 8? Wrath and anger, verse 9, trouble and distress. Now, if you take a step back and realize that those who persistently do good have had a change of heart by the grace of God, for he's going to say a few verses later, there's no one that does good. But if you have a group of people who are doing good, it's because there's been a radical change in their life. That they have believed in the grace of God and had their sins forgiven and radically have been recreated into a new person. They're persistent. The word persistent is so key. It's the tenor of their life. It's the practice of their behavior. But with everyone who does evil, it's the stubbornness of their life. They reject the truth. Remember in chapter one, they suppress the truth. They exchange the truth for a lie, the truth about God. And now they reject the truth. And they are stubborn and hard in their heart. Everything about them has become insensitive to the truth of God. So what you have here is Paul simply saying that while we are saved by grace, we'll be judged by works because the works show the condition of the heart. You must have the mark of obedience the obedience to faith mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5, if you would cherish the hope of being a child of God. You cannot work your way to heaven, but when you trust him, he changes you, and the evidence is in your life. But when you reject the truth and suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie, the evident evidence is in your life as well. You follow self-righteousness, selfishness, Wickedness, which is the hypocrisy of verse 1. And the end will be wrath and anger. And notice it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews always wanted to be first, but here the scripture says they're first in judgment. Verse 9. First for the Jew. Because to whom much is given, much is required. And then to the Gentile, verse 10 says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, just underscoring the fact that the two main categories in this world are not Jew and Gentile, but those who live for good by the grace of God and those who reject the truth and live for evil, those are the two groups, the saved and the lost. And it all ends in verse 11, for God 
is no respecter of persons. God's judgment is always impartial. If you're keeping a list, that's the last one. And in fact, this impartiality is discussed from verse 12 all the way through verse 16. God is no respecter of persons, you who think you have a pass. God does not overlook you because of your family, your heritage, your ethnicity, your connection to a church or a covenant, unless it's the heart that is turned away from sin and the heart that has embraced the Savior. So we are saved entirely by God's grace. And the evidence is made public, not that God needs it, but the world does at the day of judgment, the evidence is made public. And when you go down to verse 16, you'll see that verse 16 really is a continuation from verse six. Verse six says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 16, and this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Several things about that verse, to me, are quite intriguing. Number one, the day is coming. The day of judgment is coming, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, there is a judgment for unbelievers. There is a judgment for believers. Believers are not going to be cast in with the tares. The weed and the tares will be separated. But we'll receive reward or loss of it based on faithfulness. And the deeds of the wicked will be shown so that there is no excuse and no escape and all of this will happen on the day. And the day is part of the gospel, Paul says. This will take place on the day when God judges the secrets. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says some people's sins go before them openly before the judgment. We all know about, know about them. We read about them in the papers or uh, Something has happened, so everyone in the family knows the secret sin. Some men's sins go before them, before the judgment. Other people's sins hound them, follow after them, and catch up with them at the day. The secret sins. And Paul says, this is what my gospel declares. What part of this judgment is part of the gospel? It's the bad news that creates the necessity for the good news. I think I've shared before, when I was growing up, I attended a liberal church, and the messages were often not on the word of God. And there was pageantry to a certain degree and ritual, and it was as boring as anything I had ever experienced. As a young kid, I would be thinking about the football game or the baseball game that I was going to play that afternoon. I couldn't wait to get out. And I remember saying to myself, it's interesting what you remember years later. I remember saying to myself, I will never 
ever do that job of a preacher. <laughs> Honestly said it. But that's because I didn't know the gospel. And if the only thing I had to tell you was bad news, I wouldn't waste my time. If the only thing I had to do is to somehow kind of inspire you and encourage you and lift up your spirits, even though I had no truth to tell you and no message of, of salvation, I wouldn't do it. But the gospel is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that those who are perishing don't have to perish, for he died for you. And when you believe in him, when you put your faith and trust in him, faith comes. Faith brings the righteousness of God to the soul. And you're made righteous when by faith you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Well, then everything changes. And by the grace of God, the good news of the gospel sets you free. I need not fear judgment because Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow and the day will declare which side I'm on. Let's pray. Lord, it's so heavy to go over this bad news. But Lord, it's so wonderful to end with the good news and to see that you rise above it all and to emphasize the riches of your kindness and your forbearance and patience. Oh, Lord, may we not show contempt for them by continuing to live into sin, live in sin. Lord, give us a heart after you. Help us not to condemn sin in others while overlooking it in ourselves, to take the beam out of someone else's eye or the moat in someone else's eye when there's a beam in our own. Lord, help us to be the type of people who love people because you so love the world. And the type of people who share the good news of Christ so people can avoid that day of judgment and condemnation. Lord, we lift up our voice in praise to the King of life. In Jesus' name, amen.